for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Check them out at BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Keep warm this winter, keep your feet warm, and uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, you can check out the cool t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anyone can check out the cool t-shirts, but hey, it's summertime down there. And hey, this is Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. Just got back from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival the other day. Man, was it good. Listen for an upcoming episode about the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival from The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the other show that's on this podcast feed. And hey, check it out. We're going to have a new show coming up. It's not going to stay on this podcast feed, but we're going to feature it on this podcast feed at first. It's called... Articulate warbling, or that's not rave, that's not ranting, that's articulate warbling, with uh, past guest uh, Zach Ferguson, author, and uh, yeah, so why don't you sit back and listen to one of the many stories we're about to tell you for the rest of this week, uh, month, actually, we've got a month of ghost stories, so, you know, if, if you like ghost stories, you want to listen to them, why not go to pgttcm? Potbean.com and donate. Become a member of one of our various uh, cults or uh, fan cults. We've got the t-shirt cult, we've got the beer cult, we've got the advert cult, and then we've got the spectral cult for people who just want their names and just want to donate a buck a month. I mean, hey, that's pretty cool. And you can always check us out at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.potbean.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Stitcher, I think we're on Spotify. Uh, We are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter, even though eh, I don't really use it. Thank you so much, and hey, ghost stories, rate, review, subscribe. Mrs. Davenport's Ghost by Frederick P. Schrader Dear readers, do you agree with Hamlet? Do you believe that there is more between heaven and earth than we dream of in our philosophy? Does it seem impossible to you that Alephus Levy conjured up the shade of Apollonius of Tyana, the prophet of Magi, in a London hotel, and that the great sage, William Crookes, drank his tea at breakfast several days a week, for months in succession, in the society of the materialized spirit of a young lady, attired in white linen, with a feather turban on her head? Do not laugh. Panic would seize you in the presence even of a turban spirit, and the grotesque spectacle but would intensify your terror. As for me, I did not laugh last night on reading an account in the New York newspaper of a criminal trial that will probably terminate in the death penalty of the accused. It is a sad case. 
I shudder as I transcribe the records of the trial from the testimony of the hotel waiter, who heard the conversation of the two Confederates through a keyhole, and of forty thoroughly credible witnesses, who testify to the same facts. What would my feelings if I had seen the beautiful victim with a gaping wound in her breast, into which she dipped her finger to mark the brow of a murder? About three o'clock in the afternoon of February 3rd, Professor Davenport and Miss Ida Southchott, a very pale and delicate young girl, who had submitted to the tests of Professor Davenport for a number of years, were finishing their dinner in their room in the second story of a New York hotel. Professor Benjamin Davenport was a celebrity, but it was said that he owed his fame to somewhat questionable means. The leading spiritualist did not repose the confidence in him that manifestly marked their regard for William Crooks or Daniel Douglas Holm. Greedy and unscrupulous mediums, the author of Spiritualism in America thinks, are to blame for the most bitter attacks to which our cause has been exposed. When the materializations do not take place as quickly as circumstances require, they resort to trickery and fraud to extricate themselves from a dilemma. Professor Benjamin Davenport belonged to these versatile mediums. Aside from this, queer stories were afloat about him. He was secretly accused of highway robbery in South America, cheating at cards in the gambling houses of San Francisco, and the over-hasty use of firearms towards persons who had never offended him. It was said almost openly that the professor's wife had died from abuse and grief at his infidelity. But in spite of these annoying rumors, Mr. Davenport, by virtue of his skill as a fraud and faker, continued to exercise a great deal of influence upon certain plain and simple-minded folks, whom it was impossible to convince that they had not touched the materialized spirits of their brothers, mothers, or sisters through the agency of his wonderful power. His professional success received material ascension from his swarthy, Mephisto-like countenance, his deep, fiery eyes, his large curved nose, the cynical expression of his mouth, and the lofty, almost prophetic tone of his words. When the waiter had made his last visit, he did not go far. The following conversation took place in the room. There is to be a seance this evening at the residence of Mrs. Harding, began the medium. Quite a number of influential people will be there, and two or three millionaires. Conceal under your skirt the blonde woman's wig and the white material in which the spirits usually make their appearance. Very well, replied Ida Southchott, in a resigned tone. The waiter heard her pace the room. After a pause, she asked, Whose spirit are you going to control this evening, Benjamin? The waiter heard a loud, brutal laugh and the chair groaning beneath the weight of the demonstrative professor. Guess. How should I know? she asked. I am going to conjure up the spirit of my dead wife. And another burst of laughter issued from the room, full of sinister levity. A cry of terror burst from Ida's lips. A muffled sound indicated to the eavesdropper at the door that she was dragging herself to the feet of the professor. "'Benjamin! Benjamin! Don't do it!' she sobbed. "'Why not? They say I broke Mrs. Davenport's heart. The story is damaging my reputation. 
but it will be forgotten if her spirit should address me in terms of endearment from the other shore in the presence of numerous witnesses for you will speak to me tenderly will you not ida no no you shall not do it you shall not think of it listen to me for god's sake during the four years that i have been with you i have obeyed you faithfully and suffered patiently i have lied and deceived like you i learned to imitate the sleep and symptoms of clairvoyance tell me did i ever refuse to serve you or utter a word of complaint even when my shoulders bent with the weight of my burden when you pierced the flesh of my arms with knitting needles worse than all this i imitated distant voices behind curtains and made mothers and wives believe that their sons and husbands had come from a better world to communicate with them how often have i performed the most dangerous feats in parlors with the lamps turned low clothed in a shroud or white muslin i essayed to represent supernatural forms whom tear-dimmed eyes recognized as those of departed dear ones you do not know what i suffered at this unhallowed work you scoff at the mysteries of eternity i suffer the torments of an impending retribution my god if sometime the dead whom i counterfeit should rise up before me with uplifted arms and dreadful imprecations this constant terror has injured my heart it will kill me i am consumed by fever look how emaciated how worn out and downcast i am but i am under your control do as you like with me i am in your power and i want it to be so have i ever complained but do not force me to do this thing benjamin have pity on me for what i have done for you in the past for what i am suffering do not attempt this mummery do not compel me to play the role of your dead wife who was so tender and beautiful oh what put that into your mind spare me benjamin i implore you the professor did not laugh again amid the confusion of upturned articles of furniture the eavesdropper distinguished the sound of a skull striking the floor he concluded that professor davenport had knocked miss ida down with a blow of his fist or kicked her as she approached him but the waiter did not enter the room as no one rang for him that evening forty persons were assembled in miss joanne harding's parlor staring at a curtain where the spirit form was in process of materializing one dark lantern in a corner of the room contributed the light that emphasized the darkness rather than relieved it the room was pervaded by profound silence save the quickened suppressed breathing of the spectators the fire in the grate cast mysterious rays of light resembling fugitive spirits upon the objects around almost indistinguishable in the semi-gloom professor davenport was at his best this evening the spirit world obeyed him without hesitation like their lawful master he was the mighty prince of souls hands that had no arms were seen picking flowers from the vases the touch of an invisible spirit conjured sweet melodies from the keys of the piano the furniture responded by intelligent rappings to the most unanticipated questions the professor himself elevated his form in symbolical distortions from the floor to an altitude of three feet indicated by mrs harding and remained suspended in the air for a quarter of an hour 
holding live coals in his hands. But the most interesting, as well as the most conclusive test, was to be the materialization of the spirit of Mrs. Arabella Davenport, which the professor had promised at the beginning of the seance. The hour has come, exclaimed the medium. And while the hearts of all throbbed with anxious suspense, and their eyes distended with painful expectancy of the promised materialization, Benjamin Davenport stood before the curtain. In the twilight the tall man with the disheveled hair and demon look was really terrible and handsome. "'Appear, Arabella,' he exclaimed in a commanding voice, with gestures of the Nazarene at the sepulchre of Lazarus. Suddenly a cry burst from behind the curtain, a piercing, shuddering, horrible shriek, the shriek of an expiring soul. The spectators trembled. Mrs. Harding almost fainted. The medium himself appeared surprised. But Benjamin recovered his composure on seeing the curtain move and admit the spirit. The apparition was that of a young woman with long blonde tresses. She was beautiful and pale, clad in some light, whitish material. Her breast was bare, and on the left side appeared a bleeding wound, in which trembled a knife. The spectators rose and retreated, pushing their chairs to the wall. Those who chanced to look at the medium noticed that a deadly pallor had overspread his face, and that he was cowering and trembling. But the young woman, Mrs. Arabella, the real one, whom he so well remembered, she had come in response to his summons, and advanced in a direct line toward Benjamin, who in terror covered his eyes to shut out the ghastly sight, and with a cry fled behind the furniture. But she dipped the finger of her thin hand into the blood from her wound, and traced it across the brow of the unconscious medium, the while repeating in slow, monotonous tone that sounded like the echo of a wail, again and again, "'You are my murderer! You are my murderer!' And while he was rolling and tossing in deadly terror on the floor, they turned up the lights. The spirit had vanished, but in the communicating room behind the curtain, they found the body of poor Miss Ida Southchott with horribly distorted features. A physician who was present pronounced it a heart stroke. And that is the reason that Professor Benjamin Davenport appeared alone in a New York courtroom to answer to the charge of having murdered his wife four years ago in San Francisco. End of Story 6 The Phantom Woman He took an all-possessing, burning fancy to her from the first. She was neither young nor pretty, so far as he could see, but she was wrapped round with mystery. That was the key of it all. She was noticeable in spite of herself. Her face at the window, sunset after sunset, her eyes, gazing out mournfully through the dusty panes, hypnotized the lawyer. He saw her through the twilight, night after night, and he grew at length to wait through the days in a feverish waiting for dusk, and that one look at an unknown woman. She was always at the same window on the ground floor, sitting doing nothing. She looked beyond, so the infatuated solicitor fancied at him. Once he even thought that he detected the ghost of a friendly smile on her lips. Their eyes always met with a mute desire to make acquaintance. 
This romance went on for a couple of months. Gilbert Dent assured himself that nothing in his life can possibly remain stationary, and he cudgeled his brain for a respectable manner of introducing himself to his idol. He had hardly arrived at this point when he received a shock. There came an evening when she was not at the window. Next morning he walked down Wood Lane on his way to the office. He always went by train, but he felt a strong disinclination to go through another day without a sight of her. His heart began to beat like a schoolgirl's as he drew near the house. If she should be at the window, he was almost disposed to take his courage in his hand and call on her, and yes, even tell her in quick bursts that she had mysteriously become all the world to him. He could see nothing ridiculous in this course. The possibility of her being married, or having family ties of any sort, had simply never occurred to him. However, she was not at the window. What was more, there was a sinister silence, a sort of breathlessness about the whole place. It was a very hot morning in late August. He looked a long time, but no face came, and no movement stirred in the house. He went his way, walking like a man who has been heavily knocked on the brow and sees stars still. That afternoon he left the office early, and in less than an hour stood at the gate again. The window was blank. He pushed the gate back, it hung on one hinge, and walked up the drive to the door. There were five steps, five steps leading up to it. At the foot he wheeled aside sharply to the window. He had a sick dread of looking through the small panes, why he could not have told. When at last he found courage to look, he saw there was a small round table set just under the window, a work table to all appearance. One of those things with lots of little compartments all round and a lid in the middle which shut over a well-like cavity for holding pieces of needlework. He remembered that his mother had one, thirty years before. Round the edge of the table was gripped a small, delicate hand. Gilbert Dent's eyes ran from this bloodless hand and slim wrist to a shoulder under a coarse stuffed bodice, to a rather wasted throat, which was bare and flung back. So this was the end, before the beginning. He saw her. She was dead. Twisted on the floor with a ghastly face turned up toward the ceiling, and stiff fingers caught in desperation round the work-table. He stumbled away along the path and into the lane. For a long time he could not realize the horror of this thing. The influence of the decayed house hung over him. Nothing seemed real. It was quite dark when he moved away from the gate, and went in the direction of the nearest police station. That she was dead, this woman whose very name he did not know— Although she influenced him so powerfully, he was certain. One look at the face would have told anyone that. That she was murdered he more than suspected. He had seen no blood about, there had been no mark on the long, bare throat, and yet the word rushed in his ears, murder. Later on he went back with the police officer. They broke into the house and entered the room. It was in utter darkness, of course, by now. Dent, his fingers trembling, struck a match. It flared round the walls and lighted them for a moment before he let it fall on the dusty floor. The policeman began to light his lantern and turned it stolidly on the window. 
he had no reason for delay he was eager to get to the bottom of the business his professional zeal was whetted this promised to be a mystery with a spice in it he turned the light full on the window he gave a strange choked cry half of rage half of apprehension then he went up to gilbert dent who stood in the middle of the room with his hands before his eyes and took his shoulder and shook it none too gently there ain't anybody he said dent looked wildly at the window the recess was empty except for the work table the woman was gone they searched the house they minutely inspected the garden everything was normal everything told the same mournful tale of desertion of death of long empty years but they found no woman nor trace of one this house said the policeman looking suspiciously into the lawyer's face has been empty for longer than i can remember nobody'll live in it they do say something about foul play a good many years ago i don't know about that all i do know is that the landlord can't get it off his hands it was doubtful if gilbert dent heard one word of what the man was saying he was too stunned to do anything but creep home when he was allowed to go and let himself stealthily into his own house with a latch-key he was afraid even of himself he did not go to bed that night as for the mystery of the woman the matter was allowed to drop it ended officially there was a shrug and a grin at the police station the impression there was that the lawyer had been drinking that the dead woman in the empty room was a gruesome freak of his tipsy brain a week or so later dent called on his brother ned the one near relation he had ned was a doctor perhaps he was a shade more matter-of-fact than gilbert at all events when the latter told his story of the house and the woman he attributed the affair solely to liver you are overworked the elder brother looked at the younger's yellow face an experience of this nature is by no means uncommon haven't you heard of people having their pet spooks but this was a real woman he declared i-i-well i was in love with her i had made up my mind to marry her if i could ned gave him a king swift glance we'll go to brighton to-morrow he said with quiet decision as for your work everything must be put aside you've run completely down you ought to have been taken in hand before they went to brighton and it really seemed as if ned was right and that the woman at the window had been merely a nervous creation it seemed so that is for nearly three weeks and then the climax came it was in the twilight she had always been a part of it that gilbert dent saw her again the woman that he had found lying dead they were walking the two brothers along the cliffs the wind was blowing in their faces the sea was booming beneath the cliff ned had just said it was about time they turned back to the hotel and had some dinner when gilbert with a cry leaped forward to the very edge of the flat grass path on which they were strolling the movement was so sudden that his brother barely caught him in time they struggled and swayed on the very edge of the cliff for a second gilbert possessed by some sudden frenzy seemed resolved to go over but the other at last dragged him backward 
and they rolled together on the close thick turf at this point gilbert opened his eyes and tried to get on his feet better asked his brother cheerfully holding out a helping hand strange the sea has that effect on some people didn't think you were one of them what effect vertigo my dear fellow ned said the other solemnly i saw her it's not worth your while to try to account for anything i have been inclined to think that you were right that she the woman at the window was a fancy that i had fallen in love with a creation of my own brain but i saw her again to-night you must have seen her yourself she was within a couple of feet of you why did you not try and save her it was nothing short of murder to let her go over like that i did my best you certainly did to kill us both said ned grimly gilbert gave him a wild look after luncheon ned persuaded him to rest watched him fall asleep and then went out in the porch of the hotel he was met by a waiter on his return who told him that gilbert had left about a quarter of an hour after he had himself gone out directly he heard this he feared the worst having as is usual in such cases a very hazy idea of what the worst might be of course he must follow without a moment's delay but a reference to the timetable told him that there was not another train for an hour and that was slow it was already getting dusk when he arrived there he felt certain that gilbert would go there he got to the end of the lane and walked up it slowly examining every house there would be no difficulty in recognizing the one he wanted gilbert had described it in detail more than once he stood outside the loosely hanging gate at last and stared through the darkness at the shabby stucco front and rank garden he went down a flight of steps to the back door and finding it unfastened stepped into a stone passage it was one of the problems of the place that he should have avoided the main entrance door with a half-admitted dread and that only half-admitting still he was afraid to mount the long flight of stone stairs leading from the servants quarters however he pulled himself together and went up to the room it was quite dark inside he heard something scuttle across the floor he felt the grit and dust of years under his feet he struck a match just as gilbert had done and looked at first at the recess in which the window was built the match flared round the room for a moment and gave him a flash picture of his surroundings he saw the stripes of gaudy paper moving almost imperceptibly like tentacles of some sea monster from the wall he saw a creature it looked like a rat scurry across the floor from the window to the great mantelpiece of hard white marble if he had seen nothing more than this he saw in detail all that first match had flashed at him he saw his brother lying on the floor a ghastly coincidence his hand was caught round the edge of the work table as hers had been the other hand was clenched across his breast there was a look of great agony on his face a dead face of course this was the end of the affair he was lying dead by the window where the woman had sat every night at dusk and smiled at him a second match went out the brother of the dead man struck a third he looked again closely then he staggered to his feet and gave a cry 
it rang through the empty rooms and echoed without wearying down the long stone passages in the basement gilbert's head was thrown back his chin peeking to the ceiling on his throat were vivid marks the doctor saw them distinctly he saw the grip of small fingers the distinct impression of a woman's little hand the curious thing about the whole story the most curious thing perhaps is that no other eye ever saw those murderous marks so there was no scandal no chase after the murderer no undiscovered crime they faded when the doctor saw his brother again in the full light and in the presence of others his throat was clear and the post-mortem proved that death was due to natural causes so the matter still stands and will but where the house and its overgrown garden stood runs a new road with neat red and white villas whatever secret it knew if any it kept discreetly ned dent is morbid enough to go down the smart new road in the twilight sometimes and wonder end of story seven sandy's ghost commendations for the night stranger well yes i reckon we can fix a place for you have a chair and set you down thank you don't you find this rather a lonely place no neighbors no nothing that i can see how came you to settle here so far removed from other habitations well perhaps it's best not to ask too many questions to once beg your pardon no offense was intended i assure you simply idle curiosity don't say another word stranger but come on in we'll have a snack for supper polly bring on some victuals you're just in time polly at once obeyed she was a typical western girl tall lithe graceful and lipid-eyed she was clear-skinned and high-spirited too and in this case ignorant through no fault of her own john barr's eyes scanned her intently and a flush came to her cheeks for the first time in her life she was unpleasantly conscious of her bare feet it may have been this that made her stumble and spill some of the contents of an earthen bowl over the guest's knees as she placed it on the table her eyes flashed and a tear of anger twinkled on the lashes she stopped half meaning to apologize but an oath from her father caused her to set the bowl down heavily and to hurry from the cabin a moment later barr saw a flutter of pink calico from behind a pile of rocks old kit robinson saw it too don't wonder at your saying tain't right she's a smart gal and a good looker too as should have been sent away from here to school ter be edicated she won't leave her no count dad i oughter be shot for cussin her but i ain't what i used ter be settin here and keepin guard makes me nervous Barr's eyes asked the question his lips refused to speak supper eaten the men went outside and sat with their chairs tilted back against the cabin something in the younger man's frank face had softened old kit into a reminiscent mood and made him strangely inclined to gratify an idle curiosity the soft evening wind sighed through the branches of the tall spruce pines and the declining rays of the setting sun caused the shadow of the rude home to stretch out longer across the greensward from its shelter where he sat john barr looked out on the grand ranges of the rockies and wondered where in their vastness he would find the man he sought 
the finding of whom had brought him into this wild and unforsaken mining camp. Stranger, I've taken a liking to you. You've been a something about you that reminds me of someone I know, and you look like an honest chap. Say, do you believe in ghosts? He put the question very suddenly, and a look of disappointment crossed his face when Barr told him that he did not believe in spooks. Well, I've seen em. A thought connecting the pink calico with something in the past came to Barr's mind. Can't you tell me about it? he asked. I'd like ter if you'll swar on your derringer and never ter blab. Will you swar? The solitary guest started a smile, but the smile faded at the thought of unshed tears in Polly's eyes. It might make it easier for her if he humored the old man. I swear, he said, and he did. Do you see yon old spruce at the turn of the trail in the cliff just above? Well, that's the spot I'm watching and guarding till the owner comes and to reclaim it. I'm quick to burn powder and pretty sure shot. I know a man when I sees him, and I ain't easy fooled. Well, to begin with, I had a partner once, and he was a man, sure enough. He was from the state of New York. I never axed him as to how so fine a gent come to diggin' and shovelin' in the Rockies. Though to myself I said there was some good reason. He had light hair, and we called him Sandy, for short, and he was just about as gritty as sand. We was as unlike as any two fellers you ever saw. He was quiet-like and steady, and I was sorter wild and reckless, and I liked mounting do most too well. Well, when we had a little dust scraped together, we would divvy, and I took my share way down to the station on the other side of the cliffs and sent her off to the bank in Helena. But I allers left some hid where the gal could find it. Old Sandy had a bank of his own that no one knew about, except in himself, and every time we divided he'd carry part of it to his hiding place, and then give the rest to me to send to his boy, that he said was being educated in some college way up in Boston. He seemed to think a heap of that boy. Arter a while, my old woman gave out, and soon we laid her away on the hillside. It was hard, stranger. Old Kit's voice failed him for a moment, but he quickly regained his composure and continued. But when old Sandy, my good old pard, give up, I didn't care for nothing. We buried him in style. All the boys from round the diggins was thar, and many an eye was wet. We didn't have nary a preacher, but the gal she prayed at the grave. For the life of me, I don't know where she learnt it. Reckon the old women must have told her. Next morning, the gal showed me a letter that Sandy gave her just for he died. It was Tur's boy, and she was to give it to him, if he ever come out this way, and she got it yet. That same evening after supper, feeling kinder gloomish, and like there was something in my throat I couldn't swallow, I took a stroll up the gulch. I went on out to the top of the ridge of the big rock and got to studying where I'd find another pard like Sandy. All to once I felt a hand touch my shoulder kind of light once or twice. I jumped up, half spectin' it was Sandy, but it was only the gal. Well, I was all took back at fust, and then I got mad. What air you doin' up here? I axed, kinder tough. She had tears in her eyes as she looked up at me and said, Pap, don't get mad. I was lonesome. I seed you coming up this way, and I followed you, 
cause i wanted to tell you that sandy said to give his boy his pile when he comes well says i you might have waited till i come back to the house and then i sent her back after she was gone i sought her study and where in the world sandy's pile was i tried to think where he could have hid it but it weren't no use all at once i noticed it was plumb dark and these surroundings ain't a healthy place for a man to roam in after nightfall specially if he ain't got his shootin irons on i cut a pretty swift gait for the shack just as i come around the bend there at the pine i happened to look up toward the cliff and there sought sandy yes sir he was him sure as you're born my feet felt heavy as lead and i couldn't move from the spot i tried to holler but it weren't no go finally i gave a sudden jerk and made a step toward him and as i did so he disappeared then i made tracks for home but i kept mum because i knowed the boys would say that mounting dew was licking up my brains and i would be seeing snakes and such things for long the next night somehow or another i thought to go and see if he was there again and sure enough there he sought looking kinder sad and making marks on the rocks with his fingers i had my hand on my gun this time so i got a little closer than afore but by hooky he got away from me again nor did he come back i could hardly wait for the next night to come around at the same time i was on hand good and early just as it begun to get dark and the trees looked like long spooks a-stretchin out their arms i looked toward the cliff and there he sat markin and scratchin on the rock with his fingers and lookin sad now this being the third time i kinder got bolder and i went a little closer and says sandy what's the mat matter with you didn't the boys do the plantin right for you then as luck would have it i thought of something else right quick and i said or is it the dust you've hid where you're sittin well he looked up at me then and the happiest smile come to his face and all to once he disappeared again and since then i've sought here guardin the place till the right one comes along to claim it let's see what did you say your name was pardon me i thought i told you my name is john willett barr polly oh polly come you here gal what was sandy's full name i plumb forgot what do you want to know fur she asked i ain't goin to tell you now that's my own secret come come gal tell me to once it won't be healthy for you well then she answered stubbornly it was john willett barr at her reply the young man's face grew deathly pale and he started up from his chair but kit thrust him back into his seat saying bring me the letter polly what are you going to do with it pa she inquired cautiously i promised old sandy on my oath to keep it till the right one comes along to claim it and i mean to keep my word the right one is here gal there he sits so trot that letter out and don't parley long with me if you knows when you're well off polly stared at the young man in utter bewilderment for a moment then turning slowly she stepped quietly into the cabin after the precious document an unusual gleam of joy lighted up her face and a suppressed excitement shone in her eyes under her breath she said somehow or other i felt he was the right one too truly 
john barr realized in that painful moment that whom he sought was now dead to him that the father from whom he had been parted so many years was sleeping that long dreamless sleep in the clay mound on the hillside which marked his last resting place as he turned to look at the face of old honest kit who had been his father's friend during those long years of forced exile a happy smile lit up the old miner's rugged features as he pointed with his finger to the rock-cliff near the old spruce vine and said in an exultant trembling voice thar he be stranger just as i have seen him many a night your dad my pard poor old sandy with an eager voice john barr sprang forward and the mountains echoed and re-echoed the plaintive cry of father father but his outstretched arms clasped only emptiness and the darkening shadows of the rapidly approaching night end of story eight